may be seated. Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 12. Psalm 12 will be the psalm that we're in this morning. So we've been making our way through the first book of Psalms, this section that we're in, Psalm 10 to Psalm 14, is largely a section that meditates and describes the reality of the ungodly, their their nature, their works, the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And in the middle of it, in Psalm 12, this same theme is continuing, but now the focus is on their use of words, contrasted with the pure words of the Lord. So we'll look at that together this morning. Psalm 12, we'll begin reading the text together. Beginning in verse 1, this is David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, as Your servant David looked around at the nation he was in, he saw nothing but unrighteousness, ungodliness, and the wicked on every side prowling and using their tongues to destroy to flatter, to speak lies, to undermine the truth of Your Word. But it is ultimately Your Word that David continued to trust in because it is Your Word and Your Word alone that can never be moved. And Lord, in the same way as we are a people who are in the midst of a people with unclean lips, as we ourselves often use our tongues to work much disaster because of the sin that is within us, we need words that are true and pure, and it is Your Word that You give to us for that very purpose. So that as we hear Your words, as we receive Your words, as we believe in Your words and meditate on Your words, it is Your words which guide us as a light in a dark path to righteousness and to eternal life in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as You have called us to be a people who believe in the Word, Your Son, and who submit ourselves to Your written Word, that we would never neglect it, that we would always have confidence in it, that we would place ourselves under it, So that You, by Your providence and through Your Word, may guide us to everlasting life. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, George Orwell's 
dystopian novel, probably know of, 1984, which describes this fictional world in a place called Oceania, where the government has full control over every aspect of the lives of its citizens, one of the means of control that the ruling party uses to subjugate people is the control of language. The ruling party, which is called INGSOC, which is an abbreviation for English Socialism, the ruling party slowly implemented changes to language itself in order to dictate what words could mean and what words could not mean. The party wants to control everything about its citizens. It wants to control even how people speak. And through that, how they think. And this official language in the book is called newspeak. And it's the means by which the party can not only communicate the ideas of their own worldview and their own policies, but they can also, through it, suppress dissenting opinions. Old thoughts which don't share the views of the party, which are considered heretical thoughts and which could be expressed by the old use of language called old speak, all of these thoughts were supposed to vanish altogether by excluding some words from the vocabulary, by inventing new words altogether, or by giving strange new meanings, contrary meanings even, to words that had long existed. One example that you find in the book is the use of the word free. Free, of course, the word free could communicate the idea of political and intellectual freedom, which to the party, of course, is a forbidden idea to have. And it's contrary to its pursuit to control the citizens. But rather than eliminating this word free altogether, newspeak restricted its meaning. One could say, for example, this dog is free from lice, or this field is free from weeds. But you can never use the word free to refer to any notions of political or intellectual freedom. The word could refer to the absence of a thing, but nothing more beyond that. Another example of newspeak is seen in the party's three slogans. The three slogans are number one, war is peace. War is peace. The second is freedom is slavery. Freedom is slavery. And the third is ignorance is strength. These are contrary meanings to the words. Here, these words are given meanings that are the opposite of their former meanings and their true meaning. Language itself is being twisted and distorted in order to propagate lies and to suppress even the possibility of opposition. Whereas language and words were supposed to be tools that are used to communicate truth, in newspeak, words are used to further the lives of the party and nothing more. And even though Newspeak is just a concept in Orwell's fictional novel, it of course speaks to the reality of a method of evil that has been present among men for a very, very long time. We have a kind of Newspeak even today. 
We are told that people can mold language to suit their own ideologies and false worldviews. They can select their own pronouns, and we must follow the party line and respect those pronouns. If someone says, you have to refer to me, a singular individual, as they or them, or some made-up pronoun like Z or Zer or anything else, we have to toe the line and respect the lie that's being propagated. In our modern newspeak, the party also has slogans. Men can be women. Women can be men. The exact opposite of the meaning of those words. We see this destructive and deceptive use of language everywhere. But of course, friends, it's not just unique to our own day. This corruption of language has always been around. If you go back to the early 20th century, in J. Gresham Machen's day, who I referred to a couple of weeks ago, you saw the same thing at work among the Protestant liberals. They would say, we believe in the resurrection. But by that, they meant only they believe in a spiritual resurrection. Like some moral renewal of a person, but not a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. They were using the same words that Christians have been using for thousands of years, but they were importing new meanings into those words. They would say, we believe in Christ. But by that, they meant that all men have a kind of Christ spirit within them. A, a sort of God-like spirit that connects them to God who is virtually identified with nature itself. Again, you could have two people confessing the same thing I believe in Christ. And yet the words that are being used communicate contrary meanings. Common language was used. Historical language was used. Religious language was used that was imported with meanings in those words that had the very opposite of their normal meaning and thereby sowed much confusion within the church. Changing words, changing language, using language to deceive is one of the oldest sins in the world. It goes all the way back to the garden. When God said to the man, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the crafty serpent comes in and he twists the words of God and says, you shall not surely die. The very opposite of what God had said. We see the same thing in Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. Satan uses the words of God, twists them, rips them out of context in order to tempt Jesus to act contrary to who he is and what his mission was. This is the oldest sin in the world. Words and their meaning are the constant battleground in the cause of truth. And when sin and evil flourishes anywhere, especially in societies and in churches, one of the signs of its advancement, the sign that it's gaining ground, is the constant use of words to deceive rather than to speak truth. And when you see this on such a large scale, when it seems like this sort of 
twisting and contorting of words is all around you, it can, of course, be quite discouraging. You look around and you wonder, who can I trust? You don't know who to listen to. Many people can grow quite cynical of everyone and everything around them. Even if they were speaking to someone with integrity, they would constantly doubt it. Many people become like Pontius Pilate when he was speaking to Jesus, who is the one who is truth in himself. He's speaking to one who has integrity that far surpasses, infinitely surpasses anyone else because He is perfection. He is truth. He is the Word. Pilate was speaking to the truth. And Jesus told him that He had come into the world to bear witness to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth listens to His voice. And how did Pilate respond? Like a cynic. What is truth? What is truth? He doubts even the existence of truth and that it can be known in a world dominated by lies, paganism, and all manner of evil. In this kind of world, many come to believe that truth is simply unknowable. Many Christians can be like this as well. Many are, even today. Perhaps they had listened regularly to some preacher or teacher for a long time. They had trusted him. They had trusted what he had taught. And then he takes a position on an issue that discourages or offends them. Or it is revealed in the providence of God that he's been living a double life. I remember the shock of many, myself included, when all of the hidden immorality of the famed Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias came to light. A man who many had listened to for many years because he had spoken so eloquently about the Christian faith, all the while living his life totally contrary to everything he had said. And the shock that went throughout the Christian world. Things like this happen. Deeds done in darkness come to light. Once true teachers become false teachers and so on. Many, many Christians have become, because of this, greatly discouraged and even cynical because of all of it. But of course, if we're trying to be biblical, cynicism is not biblical. And despair is the opposite of faith. So when lies abound... And when truth is under assault, when words become malleable, what are we to do as Christians? How are we to respond? This morning, I want you to see that it's times like these especially when as Christians we must trust in and heed the pure words of the Lord all the more. It's times like these that shouldn't drive us away from the words of God, but towards the words of God as that sure foundation to stand upon. This particular psalm has a single theme that runs throughout. And the theme is about the use of words. And there's a stark contrast between what comes out of the mouth of the wicked and what comes out of the mouth of the Lord. The wicked use words to deceive and to destroy and to boast. But the Lord uses words to promise to encourage, 
and to guard His people. And it's really when you see this stark contrast between truth and beauty and, and darkness, it's really when you see this contrast that the value of heeding and holding on to the words of God become all the more important, all the more beautiful, really, in the eyes of the people of God. It's, it's much like looking at a diamond that shines on the backdrop of black velvet. You see the darkness, and yet you see the diamond shining all the more. The diamond is always beautiful, regardless of where it is, but that contrast brings it out all the more. And so we need to see this contrast. And we can see it especially as we look first at the wicked words of the ungodly. I want to begin as we look at this psalm by looking at the darkness and the wicked use of words by the ungodly. Now, as David writes this psalm, he describes the societal decay that he's seeing all around him. We can see this especially in verses 1 and the corresponding verse, verse 8. He cries out in verse 1, he says, Save, O Lord. And then he explains the reason for his petition. He says, For the godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Now, of course, there's, there's some hyperbole here. We know that David always had a company of godly people around him, even if at times it was very small. So it's not as if the godly have completely disappeared from the face of the earth, like some you know, left-behind rapture situation. They left their clothes behind and they're out of there. Right? Now, there's still some, but it, its numbers have been greatly diminished. And as David looks around and he sees this constant decrease in the number of the godly around him, it's as if they're all disappearing. This is the nature of poetry, right? You use a little hyperbole, but you understand the point. Things are bad. Really bad. The wicked are abounding. And as each day passes by, it seems as if there are less and less people he can trust. There are fewer people who are faithful followers of the Lord. He's left... There were the Philistines. There were the worshipers of Dagon. To his right, there were the worshipers of Baal. Conspiracies and plots were made against him, even coming from within his own house and even from among his closest friends. Later in Psalm 55, David will speak of the heartache that he experienced when among his taunters, and those who reviled him were not just his enemies, but those who were his closest friends. Those whom he was familiar with. Those whom he said he used to walk with in the house of God. Those whom he had shared bread with and fellowshiped with. Like Judas with Jesus turned against him and betrayed him and were now his enemies. And as the godly were shrinking in number, it created a vacuum for the ungodly to fill. He says in verse 8 at the end, he says, on every side the wicked prowl as vileness, as baseness is exalted among the children of man. The decrease in the faithful followers of the Lord means that there is a corresponding increase in the number of the wicked. Now, it's true then. That's true still today. There's never a moment where you have some neutral group. 
You either have the wicked or you have the godly. And when the godly are abounding, the wicked are more quiet, if you will, in their pursuit, their open, flagrant pursuit of wickedness. But when the wicked abound, it is often the godly who seem as if they are rare as gold. When churches are in retreat, when they're fearful to say anything that might be offensive to sinful ears, when Christians have a greater fear of man than they do a fear of God and aim only to keep their mouths shut so that it might not be known what they actually believe, well, then the wicked will abound. The wicked will make their beliefs clear and known to all. They will take it as a sign that ground has been seeded and they will advance their cause as far as possible. And when the wicked flourish, what will you see in the world? You will see a disappearance of truth. You will see a corruption of language, of words itself. And this is what David describes in verses 2 to 4. He's painting a, a picture of what he sees as the faithful vanish and as the wicked increase on every side. He's painting a picture of what's filling the void where truth should be reigning. And what fills the void is nothing but lies. Verse 2, he says, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. No one he can see is speaking truth all while they're claiming to speak truth. All while they're claiming to be using words accurately, truthfully. The imagery that he uses here is very interesting. The word for flattering connotes the idea of smoothness. You see it used in, in many places in the Old Testament, but, but one illustrative place is in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3 where the adulterous woman is said to have speech that is smoother than oil. And yet, as the proverb continues, her speech is truly sharper than a two-edged sword. She entices a man with fine-sounding speech. She tells him how much she loves him. I thought those are words that are coming out as if they're supposed to be received as true words. She loves Him. She tells Him how wonderful He is. She invites Him to her home. She looks at Him seductively. She convinces Him that with her, He will know true love. And yet her words and her actions are nothing more than an open grave that ensnares the man in a deadly fall. Her words are smooth because they sound good. But there's no truth in them. And there's no truth in them because her ways are far from God. Or you could think as well of Psalm 73, verse 18, where the same word is used when the psalmist describes the fall of the wicked by the hands of God's judgments. And he says, truly you set them in slippery places, smooth places. You make them fall to ruin. It's like walking on ice. In a moment, you can slip and you can fall. That's like these words here. These flattering, smooth lips of Psalm 12 are like this. People use their speech not to speak truth, but to scheme and to deceive and to ensnare others in all of their wickedness. David also says that they have two hearts. Literally, it says they have a 
They speak with a heart and a heart. They have the heart that they show everyone with the words that come out of their mouths when they speak well of them, when they compliment them, when they flatter them. And then they have the heart that is hidden within, which is where they are concealing their true motives, concealing their lies. And they have no concern at all that they'll ever be held accountable for the use of the tongue. In verses 3-4, to when David calls upon the Lord to judge them, he describes the kinds of things that they tell themselves. They are those in verse 4 who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? It's just like what we saw on the wicked and Psalm 10. They don't think anyone sees. There's no one to hear these lies. This is what's going on within their hearts truly. This is how they think. This is the thoughts of the double heart. It's the justification for all of their boasts and all of their flattery. No one is master over us. They don't think that they'll ever be held to account. There's no higher authority than themselves or whatever authority does exist. Because of course, many of these same people would have been worshiping false gods and false idols. Whatever authorities do exist can be just as easily manipulated as a man or a woman they speak to. You offer a couple of sacrifices, go see a priest or two, and you can get the gods to agree with whatever actions you want them to. They don't think there's anything higher than themselves. And so there's no reason for them to ever stop. It's the survival of the fittest, and they intend to exalt themselves over everyone, no matter what the cost. When this kind of ungodliness spreads throughout a society, it can no doubt result in all kinds of moral and spiritual chaos as we see so easily today. But let's not think about the society for a moment. It's real easy to think about the society. It's real easy to see all of the decay amidst an ungodly world. But what about the church? What about those who claim the name of Christ? What about the Judases? That's probably the most immediate application of this text. The church is, in essence, the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. If we're thinking, what's the What would be a similar situation that David was seeing then to our own? Probably the most immediate has to do with the church. If the effects on society when the faithful vanish and the wicked flourish are disastrous, how much more do you think it will be when those who claim the name of Christ are engaged in the same kind of deception? One of the worst things that you can ever see is when a church steadily drifts from the love that it had at first for Christ and for truth and for righteousness and for sound doctrine and what replaces it is divisive factions who do nothing more than attempt to exalt themselves. The level of hypocrisy and double-heartedness when this happens truly knows no bounds. A person comes to church and they sing the praises of God and they say to Christ, Hallelujah to Jesus who is my Savior. And they take communion together and they smile at one another and they laugh with each other. And then when they leave, they start plotting. They're like Diotrephes in 3 John who John says, 
loved to place himself first. Or even besides the divisions, is it not equally nothing more than flattery to God and double-heartedness if you come to church and you sing the truths of His Word and sing His praises and you say that He's King and He saved you from your sins and then you leave and you go on sinning. You're just flattering God while He sees what's truly in the heart. Is that not also, perhaps even more, a greater abomination than what is seen in the world. Now I think I can say with the author of Hebrews that though I speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, I feel sure of better things. But I would be remiss if I did not warn you of the danger of deceiving and being deceived of using your words to conceal your sin and of believing that hiding your sin from others means that no one will ever see and no one will ever know. The warning is that as David says in, in the psalm, the Lord will cut off all flattering lips. He knows what flattery is. He knows what the misuse of His words are. He knows what deception is. And He'll cut it all off. The person who engages in this kind of activity will be held accountable. They will be judged. They will be cast into utter darkness unless you repent. Unless you turn to Christ. Unless you flee that which is destroying your soul and bringing judgment upon you. If you repent, if you turn from that wickedness, you will be saved. You'll be made new. You'll be given a new heart that is one true heart that has a singular devotion to the Lord. And your life will not be made up of double-heartedness. But you have to repent your sins. And you have to turn to Christ for forgiveness and for cleansing. God will judge and He will vindicate His name and He will vindicate His people. Which leads us to the second part of the psalm. And the second part of the contrast of words that we see in the psalm, which is that unlike these words of the ungodly that are full of lies and full of deceit, the words of the Lord are pure. They are beautiful. They are righteous. They are good. In verses 5-7, to seven, the Lord speaks. And His words are very different from those of the wicked. Again, whereas theirs are used to lie and deceive, His words are about righteousness and justice and His intention to do what is right. In response to David's petition in verse 3, that the Lord would cut off all flattering lips, the Lord then answers. And He says in verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place Him in the safety for which He longs. Now, the poor here could certainly include those who live in material poverty and who are being taken advantage of and who trust in God, but the word primarily refers to those who are afflicted in some way. So for example, David says of himself that he is a poor man. In Psalm 34 verse 6, he says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
Of course, there's no indication that David was ever greatly materially poor. And of course, we know later he became a very wealthy king as well. The point here is that the poor are those who are suffering wrong being done to them. They are the victims of violence and oppression at the hands of the wicked, and they are looking to the Lord for their salvation. The NET translation captures this idea by translating the verse like this. It says, because of the violence done to the oppressed, I will spring into action. The Lord, in other words, is hearing the cries the cries of affliction from His people. And here, He's promising that He will act on their behalf. He will act on behalf of David, His servant, and He will act on behalf of those who, like David, are trusting in Him and longing for Him. And this is the promise that the Lord gives. And notice how David responds to this promise. The Lord speaks. He gives a word. And there's no thought that the words of the Lord that He speaks come from a double heart. David has no concern that when the Lord speaks, He will not bring it into being. No, upon receiving these words, He says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Using this image of refined silver, David is telling us that there's not a single word that God ever speaks that has even the smallest defect in it or even the tiniest speck of dirt. It is pure. It's beyond pure. You can hold up the most pure thing you could think of. Silver that has been purified seven times and the words of the Lord are more pure than that. They're more beautiful. They shine even brighter. Everything He says He will do. Every word that He speaks proves to be reliable and true, and His words stand immovable while all other words fail. As Paul says in Romans, let God be true though every man were a liar. I couldn't help but reflect this week on the fact that the Word of God in Holy Scripture has come under every attack under the sun as long as it has existed. And every attack that is launched against it inevitably fails. It's exposed for being a charade. It wasn't too long ago that scholars, for example, and archaeologists would dismiss the historicity of the Bible and argue in particular that David never existed. You know, the the, the Bible tells us about this figure, King David, and the archaeologists tell us that's just a myth. He's just a mythological figure that they made up. And why do they say that? Because there's no archaeological evidence that he ever existed. We can't find anything anywhere else outside of Scripture that ever even mentions him. So so therefore, he couldn't have existed. And that's one of the methods of much unbelieving scholarship is the Bible can't ever be used as a historical source, so we have to look elsewhere. And when they looked elsewhere, they could never find a shred of evidence that David ever existed. But in the providence of God in the late 20th century, the Tel Dan Stila was discovered, which was an ancient Canaanite inscription dating back to the 9th century B.C., not long after David would have served as king. And wouldn't you know, who did it mention? The house of David. This has happened 
over and over and over again. Some unbelieving archaeologist, some unbelieving scholar launches some attack, proposes some new theory about what the Bible is, about whether or not it's historically accurate. And inevitably, the providence of the Lord allows this to propagate for a while and then He crushes it. I mean, is it a just coincidence that it was 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later that this was discovered? No, it came at just the right time. Every time these attacks get launched against the Word of God, it is the Word of God that proves true. That's because what He says will always prove true. He promised long ago that a descendant would come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. He promised that this figure would have a throne that would endure forever. That this figure would be the one to whom obedience of the peoples would be given and through whom all the nations would be blessed. And wouldn't you know, He made good on that promise when He sent His Son into the world. Born of a virgin. Born under the law. Born as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. Born as the Son of God and the Son of Man to conquer sin and death. To place it under His feet and to be seated at the right hand of God to be the King over Zion forever and ever. He promises in this psalm that He will keep His people. He will guard them from this generation forever. Which is to say that He will not ever let the cries of His people go unheard. He will answer them. He will give them justice. He will save them when He determines that it is time. When He says, I will now arise, our salvation will come and we will be delivered forever. And we can trust in that promise because every word that God has ever spoken proves true. We can stand on it. So what do we do in a world where there is so much sin and there are so many lies and so many people who may fail us? So many who utter words with one heart and act with another? What do we do? We get back to the basics and we go to His Word. And we trust in the words of the Lord. We become and we remain a Bible people. The people of God have always been a people of the book. When they were created in the days of Moses as a nation, they were given His law, they were given His covenant, it was written down for them. They were a people of the book. And even us, these many generations later, are to remain a people of the book who have the words of God. There's no new strategy that we are to employ. There's no new method that I can offer to you. There's no new solution to the same problems that have been present among mankind forever. There's no profound piece of wisdom that no one has ever heard before. It is very simple. We must go to and we must hold on to the only words that will remain forever. We must go to the promises of God. We must be like the Psalm 1 blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And we must take those promises that he has uttered long ago, I will arise. We must take those promises that he spoke about an everlasting kingdom and we hold on to them. 
And as everything else seems to be swirling out of control around us, we are like the disciples in the boat while the storm was raging. Sometimes we can get panicked. Sometimes we can think that the boat is about to tip over. And what's Jesus doing? He's just walking on the water, upholding the very storm that is blowing around Him. And so we must look to Christ always as the One who is sovereign over all, as the One who is carrying out His will in heaven and on earth, and will accomplish His purposes at His appointed time. We hold on to His Word. And there are many lies. We hold on to the Word that is pure, like refined silver, and it will lead us ultimately to the promised land of the kingdom of God. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, Your words are the only true and pure words. They are the words that we can hold on to. They are the words that gave us life. When we heard the Gospel and You caused Your Word to go forth in the power of the Spirit, it was Your very Word that made us alive. And it will be that very Word that causes us to rise from the dead. It will be that Word that keeps us for all eternity. And so Lord, I pray for all of us that we ourselves would walk in a manner that upholds the truthfulness of Your Word, that we would not be a people of double hearts, that we, like Christ, would speak truthfully, that also we would hold on to Your Word, hold on to those promises, so that no matter what situations are occurring in the world, we have a bright, shining light that leads us to the glory of Christ. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will uh, stand with me.